Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a Blue Moon. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a glass of sangria, and on this week's episode, we are going to look into the details surrounding the strange tale of a man who robbed a bank with a collar bomb wrapped around his neck. This case starts with the events of August 28, 2003. At 1.30 p.m., Mamma Mia's Pizzeria received a pizza delivery request from a payphone located at a nearby gas station. The store owner couldn't understand the caller, so he passed the phone to his longtime employee, Brian Wells. The customer ordered two pizzas, and Brian was to deliver them to 86. 31 Peach Street, which was located a few miles away from the restaurant. When Brian arrived at the location, it was located at the end of a dirt road near a cell tower. Once Brian arrived, a struggle ensued and a collar bomb was placed around his neck. He was handed a nine-page instruction manual entitled Bomb Hostage, which instructed Brian to commit a bank robbery. The instructions included a strict timeline for which Brian needed to complete certain actions and warrant that Brian would be monitored throughout the scavenger hunt. Completing the activities added more time onto the collar bomb, and once the hunt was completed through the collection of keys, Brian would be able to defuse and remove the bomb collar. The first task was a bank robbery. Brian entered the PNC Bank located in Erie, Pennsylvania on Summit Street at 2.30 p.m. He had a note demanding $250,000 and used the shotgun he had with him to threaten the patrons and employees of the bank. The note stated that the bomb would explode in 15 minutes if the full amount wasn't handed over. The teller did not have access to the vault and thus was unable to give the full amount. They gave Wells a bag containing $8,702 and with that, Wells left the bank. At 2.38 p.m., a witness called 911 to report the robbery and noted that the robber had, quote, a bomb or something around his neck, end quote. According to witnesses, while robbing the bank, Wells was calm and even began sucking on a lollipop once he reached the counter. Fifteen minutes later, Brian was proceeding to the second part of the instruction when the police stopped his car and arrested him. Brian claimed that three black men had placed the collar on his neck and forced him to rob the bank. The police did not attempt to defuse the bomb, instead ensuring that Brian couldn't detonate it and that pedestrians were clear of the area. The bomb squad was notified at 3.04 p.m. At 3.18, three minutes before the bomb squad was to arrive, the bomb detonated. It caused a fist-sized hole in Brian's chest, which killed him in seconds. He was 46 at the time of his death. The collar of the bomb was still intact and Wells' body was decapitated so it could be retained. Police found the instructions and when trying to complete the scavenger hunt in the time allotted, they realized that Brian Wells was not meant to survive the ordeal. The details of what actually happened during the events of August 23rd started to unravel on September 20th, 2003. Bill Rothstein called the police to inform them that the body of James Roden was hidden in a freezer on his property. After he called the police, Rothstein wrote a suicide note indicating he had nothing to do with the death of Brian Wells. 
The police brought Rothstein to the station, and there he told them that Marjorie Dial Armstrong paid him $2,000 to help her hide the body of Rodin, her then-boyfriend, and clean up the crime scene. Rothstein alleged that Armstrong had killed Rodin with a 12-gauge shotgun over a money dispute. On July 30, 2004, Bill Roths died due to cancer. He was never charged in connection with this case. In January 2005, Dale Armstrong pleaded guilty but mentally ill to third-degree murder and abuse of a corpse for killing Rodin and was sentenced to between 7 and 20 years in prison. She is believed to have killed Rodin to prevent him from informing authorities about the robbery plot. In April of 2005, Armstrong requested to talk to police. During the interview with police, Armstrong admitted to providing the kitchen timers that were used for the bomb, but claimed that Rothstein was the mastermind behind the plan. In late 2005, another co-conspirator, Kenneth Barnes, was turned into the police after admitting his part in the scheme to his brother-in-law. In July of 2007, it was announced that Armstrong and Barnes were being charged in connection with the bank robbery. Brian Ross and Bill Rothstein were named as unindicted co-conspirators. It is believed that Brian Wells was involved from the beginning, but did not intend for the bomb to be real. Once he realized it was a real bomb, it theorized that a struggle ensued and the bomb caller was then placed around Brian's neck. Brian's family disputed this and claims that Brian was not a willing participant. In 2015, Jessica Hoopsick admitted to introducing Brian to Barnes due to Brian's alleged gullibility. Her reliability has been questioned, but the ATF believed in 2003 that she knew more than she was admitting to authorities. On September 3, 2008, Barnes pled guilty to conspiracy to commit bank robbery and was sentenced to 45 years. This was reduced to 22 and a half years after he testified against Armstrong. On July 29, 2008, Marjorie Armstrong was initially determined to be incompetent to stand trial due to a host of mental illnesses. She was transferred to a mental health facility. On February 24, 2009, the ruling was reviewed and Armstrong was determined to now be confident. On November 1, 2010, Armstrong was found guilty of armed bank robbery conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery and using a destructive instrument in the commission of a crime. On February 28, 2010, she was sentenced to life in prison. Armstrong is believed to be the mastermind of the bomb collar bank robbery, and her motive is stated as she wanted to get the funds to pay Barnes to murder her father in order to speed up her inheritance. All of Armstrong's appeals were rejected, and she died in prison on April 4, 2017. Jenny, what are your thoughts on this really wild and really weird case? It is definitely very wild and very weird. Lots of moving parts. I didn't know much about this going into it. We were talking before we started recording and I've avoided reading much about this or watching the Netflix documentary show Evil Genius just because the thought of Wells with that bomb around him and it going off is just like horrifying and very upsetting to me. I did not know basically like any of these details that uh, what Wells had alleged happened to him, that he was like working at a pizza place and then like during his work day this happened um, and all the other details with Marjorie. She definitely sounds like the mastermind and someone that was very money hungry based off what we just talked about. And I mean, I think she got what was coming to her. 
uh, with her prison sentence and whatnot. I wouldn't have expected, I guess, so many people to be involved just because you think, you know, more people involved, the more likely we are to get caught. Someone's going to, you know, say something, let something slip. So that was kind of surprising to me. What are your thoughts, Del? Yeah, I think this is one of the most complicated cases in terms of the moving parts that we've looked at. Um, Like you said, it has so many co-conspirators that played some type of role that we haven't really been able to flush out completely. I do agree with you that Marjorie definitely seems to be the mastermind. She's the one that had the primary motive in this case. I wish we had more information on why they decided that this was the way to get the money. I do wonder how involved Brian Wells was. This is definitely the big question of this case. Um, Did he know about it? His family has been very persistent in saying that he did not know. But honestly, I don't think that police and the prosecutors have any motivation to lie about his involvement. While Brian Wells may or may not have been involved in the scheme, delivery drivers do face a real threat of danger due to the circumstances of their job, which has them going to strangers' homes, often at night or in areas that the driver is unfamiliar with. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics lists delivery driving as the eighth most dangerous job, and that's actually ranked above police officers. They are often victims of physical assaults, robberies, carjackings, and even murder. According to the Bureau's website, of the 5,553 total workplace fatalities in America, delivery drivers made up 1,005 of them. This danger is often in addition to poor compensation, grueling hours, and a lack of upward mobility. People often use fake orders to lure delivery drivers to their homes or fake locations in order to accost the drivers, and we're going to look at two examples. On January 21st, 1995, Tony Hicks and his gang placed an order to be delivered to a fake apartment address in order to rob the delivery driver. After the gang placed the order, Tariq Kashima was assigned to the delivery and made his way to the apartment complex. When he arrived, he couldn't find the apartment and asked the neighbors for help and was told that the apartment did not exist. Frustrated but ready to go home, Tariq returned to his car where he was confronted by the 14-year-old Tony Hicks. Tony demanded that Tariq hand over the food and any money that Tariq had on him. Tariq scoffed at Tony and got in his car. Tony then used the gun that he had received from the gang leader and fired it at Tariq. Tariq died slumped over in his vehicle. He was 21 years old at the time, engaged to be married, and a sophomore in an engineering program. Tony Hicks was sentenced to 20 years to life and was paroled in 2019. On December 11th, 2017, a fake order was placed to Domino's by Israel Berrios, Carolina Carmona, and Salvador Roberts. The goal of the fake order was to rob the driver. 
Richard Labar arrived at the East Stroudsburg University campus, and investigators said Carmana had second thoughts when Labar arrived at the East Stroudsburg University ROTC building in the middle of the night to drop off the order. She told 58-year-old Labar he had the wrong house, but according to investigators, at that moment, her boyfriend Israel Barrios jumped out from behind a bush with a shotgun and pulled the trigger moments later. Labar died at a local hospital the next day. All they got from Labar's wallet was $100. Carmana and her brother, Roberts, pleaded guilty to third-degree murder and robbery. They each face a maximum possible sentence of 30 to 60 years in prison. Berrios pled guilty to second-degree murder. He faces up to a minimum of 50 years in prison. Because Berrios was under 18 at the time of the crime, he will not be facing the mandatory life sentence for second-degree murder for adult defendants. While Brian Wells' involvement in the planning of this case is disputed by his family, there are circumstances where individuals are coerced or tricked into becoming unwitting participants in the crimes of others. This is also connected to a scenario where a victim may become a willing participant in unlawful activity. This is often known as Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is a condition in which hostages develop a psychological bond with their captors during captivity. It results from a rather specific set of circumstances, namely the power imbalances contained in hostage-taking, kidnapping, and abusive relationships. Emotional bonds may be formed between captors and captives during intimate time together, but these are generally considered irrational in light of the danger or risks endured by the victims. The syndrome is rare. According to data from the FBI, about 8% of hostage victims show evidence of Stockholm Syndrome. There are four key components. The first one is a hostage's development of positive feelings towards the captor. The second is that there was no previous relationship between the hostage and the captor. The third is a refusal by hostages to cooperate with police and other government authorities. And the last one is the hostage's belief in the humanity of the captor, ceasing to perceive them as a threat when the victim holds the same values as the aggressor. Stockholm Syndrome is a quote-unquote contested illness due to doubts about the legitimacy of the condition. Stockholm Syndrome has not historically appeared in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, as many believe that it falls under trauma bonding or post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, and there is no consensus about the correct classification. In addition, there is no extensive body of research or consensus to help solve the argument. A research team led by NAMIAC has found that although there is a lot of media coverage of Stockholm Syndrome, there has not been a lot of research into the phenomenon. What little research has been done is often contradictory and does not always agree on what Stockholm Syndrome is. It has also come to describe the reactions of some abuse victims beyond the context of kidnappings and hostage taking. Actions and attitudes similar to those with Stockholm Syndrome have been found in victims of sexual abuse, human trafficking, extremism, terrorism, economic oppression, financial repression, political repression, and religious persecution. The syndrome was first named during a bank robbery in Sweden. In 1973, Jan Erik Olsen, a convict on parole, took four employees, three women and one man, of Credit Banken, 
one of the largest banks in Stockholm, Sweden, hostage during a failed bank robbery. He negotiated the release from prison of his friend Clark Olofsson to assist him. They held the hostages captive for six days from August 23rd to August 28th in one of the bank's vaults. When the hostages were released, none of them would testify against either captor in court. Instead, they began raising money for their defense. Niels Bayeryat, a Swedish criminologist and psychiatrist, coined the term after the Stockholm police asked him for assistance with analyzing the victims' reactions to this 1973 bank robbery and their status as hostages. Other examples of Stockholm Syndrome include the well-known case of Patty Hearst and the case of Mary McElroy. Patty Hearst, the granddaughter of publisher William Randolph Hearst, was taken and held hostage by the Symbionese Liberation Army, a quote-unquote urban guerrilla group, in 1974. She was recorded denouncing her family as well as the police under her new name, Tanya, and was later seen working with the SLA to rob banks in San Francisco. She publicly asserted her quote-unquote sympathetic feelings toward the SLA and their pursuits as well. After her 1975 arrest, pleading Stockholm Syndrome did not work as a proper defense in court, much to the chagrin of her defense lawyer F. Lee Bailey. Her seven-year prison sentence was later commuted, and she was eventually pardoned by President Bill Clinton, who was informed that she was not acting under her own free will. Mary McElroy was abducted from her home in 1933 at the age of 25 by four men who held a gun to her, demanded her compliance, took her to an abandoned farmhouse, and chained her to a wall. She defended her kidnappers when she was released, explaining that they were only businessmen. She then continued to visit her captors while they were in jail. She eventually committed suicide and left the following note, quote, My four kidnappers are probably the only people on earth who don't consider me an utter fool. You have your death penalty now, so please give them a chance, end quote. Jenny, what are your thoughts on Stockholm Syndrome, and do you agree it's just a phenomenon? I think I would agree, just because the evidence really isn't there to support it. I mean, some of these stories we just shared are really crazy, and I definitely don't understand the victim's point of view, especially with the bank robbery. To go as far as, like, raising money for the people's defense, that's really, like, unbelievable. But yeah, the evidence from professionals just doesn't really seem to support it and if they're skeptical I'm also a little skeptical like you said it has to be very specific circumstances and maybe in these few cases there was with Patty Hearst it definitely sounds like maybe she was forced into doing this for her safety so I can understand that I thought it was like a legitimate thing so I was surprised to hear the evidence against it I think it's interesting that professionals say it more so falls under the categories of trauma bonding or PTSD. I can definitely see it as trauma bonding. That definitely makes sense to me. Because if you're going to be, you know, held captive, maybe in some cases you would get to know the person. Maybe the person that kidnapped you would open up to you. That definitely makes sense to me. What do you think? 
I definitely agree with you. I think that Stockholm Syndrome is something that has entered the popular lexicon and something that a lot of people just know, but it's not something that is really studied by professionals. And when it comes to psychological disorders, I think that we really need to rely on what the experts are saying. I think that in a lot of ways, the media is able to create sort of like a Mandela effect. And we just kind of believe it because, you know, we have these examples of it. It definitely seems that it could be under trauma bonding and PTSD because those are mechanisms that people use to deal with traumatic situations and stressful situations. And the Stockholm Syndrome, you know, looking at the particulars of how people describe it, I'm not seeing how it would be distinct from those things that we already have. And I do think it's interesting that in recent times, we haven't really heard too much about recent cases of what people would consider Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know if it's just not getting as much media attention or the media is just being more respectful of what the experts are saying. But I do think it's interesting that it seemed to be a particular point in time that this was something that victims were labeled with if they showed any type of bonding or care towards the people that kidnapped them or did any other level of oppression or other types of crime to them. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the bomb collar robbery. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the Circleville letters. As always, stay safe.